Hello folks, Rish Outfield from the future here. Sure am enjoying eating food in pill form rather than with a knife and fork. Mm-mm. Ooh, egg foo young and chow mein. <laughs> Fills you up. Problem is I'll need another pill in just two hours or so. So uh, this was an episode that I recorded going down to the family cabin, and uh, at one point I mentioned that it's a two-hour drive, but it wasn't until the editing process that I realized <laughs> I recorded the whole dang time. Unfortunately, that means there's too much for one episode, so this is going to be the first two-part non-story, well, you just, you decide for yourself if it's a non-story episode, but giving you a warning there. Uh, also, <laughs> I uh, there's a rainstorm, a severe rainstorm, during the drive, and I don't know that I even comment on it. But at a couple of points, I was like, holy smoke, how bad is it? I mean, I remember the day, I do remember the, the rain just pouring down, and it's one of those where you have to slow down because visibility gets um, impaired. But, wow. Anyhow... Did I ask you if you could possibly enjoy? If not, enjoy. Hey there, Rich Outfield. This is the Rich Outcast. Boy, I've done a lot of episodes this past few weeks. I'm headed down to the family cabin again. I did it, I went for the very first time by myself in July, and I felt like it was a spectacular success. Spectacular success, that sounds a little odd. Uh, it, was, it was very successful. I did a lot of words and a lot of writing, did some editing, reading. It was a good time. And so I went again in August, and in August I didn't accomplish as much. But I did a ton of reading, which is nice. I mean, it's just, I guess it was like a vacation, you know, that doesn't cost anything, except for gas. But yeah, I had hoped to do some serious writing, you know, one of those where you look up at the clock and it's like 3.15 in the morning, and you're just like, wow, where did the hours go? But I didn't do it. But I did some, and I did some editing of podcasts, and then I, I recorded a show for Halloween. But now it's September, I thought I would go again. Before it gets too cold, winter starts up there about the first week of October, and it becomes impassable unless you have a snowmobile or you go in on skis. And so I, uh, I'm trying it a third time. I meant to go much earlier today, early this morning, so that I could have like the whole day and then the night and then a few hours tomorrow and then come back. Um, but things just kept coming up and I, I realized, oh shoot, I've got to do, get some work done, some actual, you know, dollar sign work done. And that always takes longer than you think it will. I was like, okay, well, I can be done with that by 10.30 in the morning and then I can go. It was like 11.05, and I looked, and I was like, oh, shoot, I still have 
I think I had like five more I had to get done. Uh, absolutely had to get done, you know, and it's like, okay. And so it ended up being like 1140 or something like that. And then I realized that I hadn't packed anything. And before I knew it, it was noon. And I started to feel this weird, I mean, it was like some kind of pressure. Some like, oh geez, dude, come on, You're, the day is gone. You know, it's like, like, like a midlife crisis of the day, midday crisis. And my sister has, I guess, always been prone to panic attacks. I've never really studied what she goes through because it's awful. I, it's, it's something I don't want to be around. I'm, yeah, I'm the kind of guy who, uh, when grandma starts speaking in tongues, I, I decide it's time to go out and find some wood to chop, you know? But yeah, my sister will have this, like, intense feeling of... I don't know if it's fear or something that's bothersome and and yeah I've never been never been jealous that's for sure of that but I've also never really paid attention taken notes on how it works cuz it's ugly I was thinking about that when I was experiencing this today and I'm not saying it was a panic attack but it started to feel like dude my time is running out dude what are you doing and I was like, I've got like four other things I have to do. And it's like, well, it's the time. It's the time is going to be gone. So I, I thought, well, maybe this is similar to what she feels with those bursts of whether it's adrenaline or whatever it is that she goes through. And I wondered, would I trade my issues, which are pretty damning, for her issues? And I thought about it and I was like, well... I don't think I would. Okay, for example, my sister is really good with people. She, I'm not going to say that she manipulates people, but she can get them to do what she wants because they like her or because she knows what to say or because, I mean, maybe she's just a good study of human behavior and, and it's helped her with that. I'm not that way at all. I, I guess it's fair to say I don't like people. I don't get people. Yeah, I've, I've just not ever been somebody who could get other people to do what they want. If so, then, you know, we would have Dunstief episodes all the time. And I was thinking, okay, well, like, what would I trade of mine for my sister's rapport with people? And, and I just thought, well, what do I have? I have, I guess, a certain amount of cleverness. I have a really strong imagination which has helped me often and hindered me almost as often. And I have a facility for language, for public speaking, for broadcasting, I guess, if I ever broadcasted, you know, voices, accents. Anyway, I was just thinking about that. It's like, well, I look at my sister's gifts versus my gifts and then look at my sister's, it's the opposite of a gift burdens versus my own and I don't know I think in some ways my sister her weaknesses are similar to mine but but, but you know just a little bit different and uh, certainly one of my weaknesses is lack of ambition I did a whole episode about that I just I want to do a lot of things and I actually do almost none of them so I was thinking about what I would do 
if I had the average amount of ambition? What would I do if, if suddenly I woke up and I was like, you know, whatever I set my mind to today, I'm going to do. And then I did it, forced myself to do it. And I thought, you know, uh, I was planning on going to the cabin another night. What I ought to do is just sit down in front of the computer and say, I'm going to come up with five ideas for stories while I'm here. And yeah, yeah, if I had more ambition, I would write those five stories. But a man's got to know his limitations, and I am not capable of writing five stories in a 20-hour period, 22-hour period. But I also thought, you know, okay, I sit down and I, I start some kind of timer, word counter, and say, I'm going to write 10,000 words, and then I get to go home. I wonder, well, how long would I be stuck at the cabin? Yeah, if I was holding myself to that. But, you know, there's no internet at the cabin. I would have to, like, physically count the words. And that is such a waste of time. I wonder, there's got to be some way you could count words, isn't there? Sometimes in the notebook, I would just do the math. I would count the number of words on a line and then multiply it by the lines because I just didn't want to go through and count and maybe lose count and then have to go back and, oh, hate. <sighs> Hate's kind of a glorious thing, kids. I think I've talked about the things that inspire me that motivate me, that get me to develop some ambition at least. One of them is contests, when people are having a short story contest and there's a deadline. That helps me, really. I like that. A um, buddy of mine na uh, named Cameron has a website and he used to do these broken mirror contests that were inspired by the broken mirror contests that Big Anklevich and I would do back in the Dunstief days. And I participated in every single one of them. I don't know that any of the stories that I wrote were spectacular, but I wrote a story for every single one of his contests. And uh, I think that's gone away. He's been going to school and he said that he plans to bring them back, but it's just kind of difficult right now. Did an episode for a story that I wrote for Weird Tales. They were having a themed I guess contest, I don't know if you call it a contest. They were open for submissions, but only with themed stories. I did an episode presenting that story. I think it's just a incentive episode for Patreon supporters. And I guess I always meant to check with them again and see if they did that again, because even though the story that I wrote for Weird Tales wasn't great and was not accepted by Weird Tales, it's another story that I wrote because of their parameters, because of their deadline, you know. So I'm setting this deadline for myself, and it's not the same as an outside deadline, as a magazine or a website or a podcast having a deadline. So I can always worm my way out of it. Human worm, ladies and gentlemen, right this way. Only two bits will get you the vision you'll not soon forget. So I, I have come up with an idea already. And part of me is like, oh, I should record the five ideas and have that be my episode. But 
I don't know. I don't think I'm going to do that. But the first idea that I came up with is, okay, post-apocalyptic Earth, just utterly ravaged by nuclear war, by disease, by radiation, all of the above. We got a protagonist who appears to be an old man, but he's not actually. It's just the conditions of Earth have prematurely aged this poor bastard. And he's just walking along, sorting through the ruins, you know, to scrounge what he can find. And I was thinking it would be neat if he found something like insanely valuable, like he found a briefcase that was like all burned and sort of melted, but it had preserved whatever was inside. And he's just like, oh, if I can figure out a way to open this, you know, this might be great, whatever it is. And so he, he breaks it open, I don't know, with a rock or a piece of chain or a, the thigh bone of a dead person and opens it and it's full of jewels. There's some diamonds in there and like bills of sales and all that stuff and of what jewelry auction it came from. And, and he's just odd because in the before time, this would have made him rich for the rest of his life really, or it would have fed him for the rest of his life at least. And in the aftertime, it's just pretty and serves no other purpose. There's no value to it at all. And he laughs and then he realizes there's somebody near him and he, he whirls and we don't realize this until at that moment that he sees somebody, a girl watching him. Now she's all bundled up Got her face covered, she's got gloves on and all that. Obviously scrounged clothes. But we realize this is the first human being he's seen in years. And he he, he stops laughing and, and he just stares for a second. She stares back. And finally he says, hello, don't be afraid. And she's not. Anyway, he hangs out with this girl and she speaks English, but it's kind of a strange English, like an accentless English. And he thinks, well, of course, this is the first kid I have seen in 10 years. And I don't know how she would learn to speak, but she's not going to speak normally. At one point, the, the, he says, um, are you a girl? And she says, what do you think? And he says, well, yeah, I, I, I get a sense that you're a girl. And she says, yes, I am. And he says, how old are you? And she says, how old do you think I am? And he says, nine? And she says, around there. And he's like, oh, of course. How would you know how old you are when there's no seasons? Everything is winter. He asks her some questions. She never has any good answers. And he realizes that maybe she's been on her own for a while. Certainly he has. But how she could survive unless she had adults protecting her, looking out for her, he, he can't say. Anyway, she's really curious. She asks all these questions. So he starts to tell her about what has happened, what the world was like before, and she's just fascinated. And he starts to laugh again. He's like, wow, this is twice I've laughed in a day. And she says, why are you laughing? And he says, because I, I'm telling you all this stuff but I don't even know if it's true, if it's real. You know, it's like, maybe I imagined it. Maybe I saw it in a movie once. 
And he says, maybe I imagined movies. Anyway, he explains to her that there was a day when aliens came to Earth and they broadcast all over this message in English and showed themselves and they were ferocious, monstrous creatures. They were dinosaur people and people were terrified and the aliens said, you know, we're, we've come to enslave you, we've come to exterminate you unless you dare to join together as one human race and try to defy us. The girl says, what happened? Why didn't you? The old man says, because that's not our way. First thing that got in the way was people started to ask, why is the alien speaking English? Language is a, a barrier between people. Why, why is it speaking English? Why would they announce they're invading instead of just invading? People started to bicker and analyze the things that the alien had said and started to suspect that there was more going on and the Americans are colluding with the aliens. There was a ship over China. So clearly the Chinese are part of it and the aliens may already be among us. You know, who is not like us? Who does not speak like us? Who does not look like us? And, and we destroyed ourselves. We went to war against the other countries. We Turns out there were all sorts of experimental weapons and pathogens that had been developed in labs and nobody dared use them. But now that the aliens had come, there was nothing stopping people from using them. There was nothing to stop people from using their nukes. Pakistan obliterated Israel. Then Pakistan was bombed as well, and Washington DC was bombed, and Moscow was bombed, and China, and, and, and the diseases were loosed, and, and people died, not by the millions, but by the billions. The cities fell. And she says, how did you survive? And he said, I, I had an accident the week that the aliens showed up. And I was in a hospital, I got a steel plate in my head. My wife and I had gone somewhere for, to recuperate. And it all happened then and things crumbled around us. The girl says, and your wife died? And he said, not for a while. No, for a while it was us and we ran into other survivors and we tried to stick together, help one another, but there was so much blame. Anybody that didn't look like us was to blame. And the women started to talk about how men destroyed the world. And the men started to realize that women were not like us. And there was another barrier right there. Another us and them, another other. And we destroyed ourselves. There could be no trust, no depending on someone else. 
I don't know why I'm alive. I think it's the plate in my head, whatever they gave me, but I don't know. All I know is that as the months went on, I found fewer and fewer people alive. I'd find their bodies and I'd find their supplies. And I became a carrion bird. Whatever the dead had found and hoarded became mine. And at first it really bothered me. I felt guilt. I longed for someone else to come along that I could share my stuff with. But after a while, it just became the way of things. They were dead and I was still alive. I could take this stuff and continue to still be alive. And then one day, I didn't see other people anymore. I would hear them and they would be faster than me or craftier than me. I got attacked one time. It was an old lady that attacked me. She hit me with a, gosh, what was it? I think a pipe. And either assumed I was dead or decided to spare me. I never saw her again. But here I am, still alive. And here you are, somehow still alive. Are you burned? Do you have radiation sickness? Do you, do you have trouble breathing? And the little girl doesn't really have any answers. He says, I, I, I know it might be hard for you to trust me, maybe impossible, but if you want to be with me, we can be two instead of one. We could look out for each other. And the little girl nods, but it's a sad nod. And he says, "What? what's the matter? Are you thinking about your family? And she says, no, I'm thinking about yours. She unwraps her face and she's not human at all. She's got this weird asymmetrical face, three nostrils. She's a funhouse mirror version of a human being. And she says, I was one of them. We came and we saw your world on the brink of tearing itself apart for no reason, for petty differences, superstitions and prejudices and pigmentation. And we thought if we presented to you an enemy that you could all focus your ire upon, you would put aside those differences and band together and humanity would blossom into some kind of unified whole. There never were any reptile aliens. We just knew that's what you feared. And the old man is sad and doesn't know what to say. And she says, you're the only human, you're the only man I've seen in a while. And your hatred for me will either destroy you or destroy me. And he's silent for a long time and then he says, no, I've tried hate for a long time. We've tried hate and it didn't work. Let's still look out for each other. Let's be friends. He gives her a 
diamond necklace or something like that. We'll put aside our differences and be two together instead of one apart. And she says, if we can do this, it'll be the first time. And that's the end. Now, it's, um, it's probably derivative and stupid. I don't give a shit. It's a story that I just made up. Basically, I wanted it to be post-apocalyptic, an old guy going through the ruins. He encounters a friend, you know, a, a, a potential partner, and that partner reveals himself, herself, to be the enemy at the end. Those were my sort of my two ideas, the two things. And uh, normally I need a third thing, but in this case I had the beginning and I had the end. And so that's good. And I guess the third thing was the idea that the aliens had shown themselves in an attempt to provoke us to unity and we had torn ourselves apart instead, which I don't know if that would happen. People have been talking about it in science fiction for decades that if an alien, a true alien were to show up, then suddenly all these things, I've got a big nose, you've got a little nose. We can't be friends, that that stuff would no longer matter. But just, I mean, in the last year, I mean, it's probably been the last couple, two or three years, it's been building. I've seen so much division, so much us and them and a reason to separate. It's not just the big things, which are borders and religion and ideology and yeah, skin color, but people just have begun to be so petty and find easy ways for us and them, for the other, the thing that it's okay for me to hate. And uh, it works great for Trump and his supporters. And it just, it, it shows me how much of that is still inside us and that maybe we'll never put it a, a, away. You know, I've been thinking about stories with generation ships, you know, with spaceships that go to another planet or moon or someplace that's habitable, but it's going to take a hundred years or longer. So you get a bunch of like-minded people. In um, Leviathan Wakes, the Mormons have built this ship called the Nauvoo, which is going to take them to some planet far, far away at another star. And like their great-grandchildren are going to be able to live on this planet and have as many kids as they want, or as many wives as they want, or whatever it is. That idea is just fascinating to me. But I wonder about it. I wonder, even a ship full of only devout Mormons, which is, you know, a, what do you call it? A, a, a minority, you know, a, they're, they're just... <laughs> it's such a specific thing, you know? It's like they have this in common, so they should do all right. I think, no, even them would find differences and find 
reasons to hate. My family, my grandparents were Mormon, whereas you guys got uh, converted in Brazil. And, well, I mean, in Brazil, they, you know, they speak Portuguese. So there's another reason to hate. In Mormonism itself, I imagine there would be different trains of thought that would come up and different dogmas, different doctrines of we adhere to this. And it's like, oh, you know, we, we don't because so-and-so said this, you know, the Bible said this, and those would break off and become their own subgroups. And eventually, probably even before that ship reached, Earth, uh, reached New Earth, they would be at war. That's just my opinion. I could totally be wrong. I'm sure every single Mormon on planet Earth believes the exact same thing and would all get along perfectly well in a room together. Anyhow, that's that story. And it's still not written. It's just an idea. But it's one of the five that I was going to come up with to this weekend. Today. <laughs> oh, I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to. I rented the series Ray Bradbury Theater. And I think it's called The Ray Bradbury Theater, which is fine. Which is a show that was on... Gosh, I want to say HBO or Showtime in like 1983 or 4. And we didn't have either of those channels. But we went to my uncle's house and he did. And I watched an episode of it and it was The Playground. And in it, this guy who <laughs> turns out was played by William Shatner. But as a, a boy, I didn't know who he was. He goes to this playground and he's afraid of the other children. Or maybe as a kid, he was afraid of the other children. Anyway, he goes to the playground as an adult and he finally dares to go among the other children. And they're not children at all. They're all like feral animal things. And I saw that as a little boy and it scared the shit out of me. There is no way I'm going to New York to meet some woman who could be a crazed psychopath. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it, and it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. Sorry. I'm fond of that line. It really terrified me, and it's the only episode that I ever saw. And so years and years later, as an adult, it became available on DVD with the world's crappiest transfer. I didn't even have, like, menus or special features or anything like that. It was just, like, two discs each disc of which held 14 episodes or 12 episodes or something like that. And I, I started watching it. And after like two or three episodes, it became clear that the budget was really, really low. It was done on the cheap. And that, gosh, it was bad. It was just, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I watched the episode, the Playground episode with Shatner and it was not scary like it had been as a kid. The feral children were like so obviously like just paper mache and makeup, you know what I mean? Just really not scary. But as a child, it was terrifying. And they had an episode that I thought was really solid where the, 
part of the problem was that these were adaptations of Ray Bradbury stories from like the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. But because there was no budget, they had to present them in the 1980s and they couldn't really afford to build sets or any of that stuff that's expensive. They, they tended to just shoot in Canada with whatever they had around. And so some of these stories didn't work. They felt like they were from the 40s or the 50s, but they were being told in the 1980s and that didn't work. There was this episode about a carnival and it was definitely one of those carnivals from the 30s or 40s with carnies and freaks and pulp magazines entered into it. But it was the 80s and there's no pulp magazines in the 80s. And the one I was going to mention that actually was a pretty good episode. These two guys are in a truck driving around with no money and they stumble upon this overlook off the road like in Arizona or something like that where there's a mirage and the mirage is of a city a, a shimmering gleaming city and they realize that the mirage looks like whatever city the viewer wants it to so they come up with this idea of charging people to pull off and and see it and they charge a dollar a car or I think might even have been 25 cents a person. And I realized about halfway through the episode that this was set during the Great Depression. But because it was 80s vehicles and 80s clothes, I was thinking, well, it must be like Mad Max Day or something like that, you know, post-apocalyptic 1980s. But because they couldn't afford to have it be depression era clothes and vehicles it just ended up being like 1984 vehicles or whatever and yet the story still remained a product of that time period people still spoke as though it was the great depression and i i don't know anyway i i'm sorry i've been talking a long time about this and i shouldn't have but I've got a two-hour drive, right? So I got to fill it with something, because there's, well, there is there is radio reception, but it's not good. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know why I used the playground and the the Mirage episode because those two were actually pretty good episodes. When there were just tons that were awful, they were awful. They were mediocre at best and just utter crap at worst my thought is well okay the budget really hamstrung these stories but also they worked as short stories i'm sure they did the velt was one of them the velt is a perfectly cromulent story but it didn't work as a 22 minute no budget television series i think that was the problem but it made me want to read some of these Bradbury stories. And I started to read a little bit about Ray Bradbury because he died so recently, and I think I've talked about it. I, I had the chance to go to meet him 
he was coming to the Barnes and Noble in Santa Monica to do a signing for, I think it was Fahrenheit 451's 50th anniversary and he was doing a signing and I was gonna go and I overslept and I missed it. And I never did get to meet him. Although I did go to a presentation and he was there. He and Ray Harryhausen were both there and, and they were friends for many, many years and they were both ancient. It seemed like they were ancient, I don't know. I think Bradbury lived to be 90. Anyway, when he died, I was bummed because I could have met him and I didn't. You know, it's not like I chose not to meet him, but trying to think of why I overslept. Did I sleep through my alarm? Did I hit snooze? You ever hit snooze one time too many and it just says, oh, okay, you must not want this to go off anymore. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I didn't feel well and I slept through the alarm or every once in a while I'm tired at night and I forget to set an alarm. That could have happened, but doesn't explain why I would have woken up and it, I had missed a, like a noon signing. I put a reference to Bradbury in my story, Takeover Day. That was because he had died. Anyway, I looked him up and it said that he had written over 600 short stories. And I, I was like, oh, that's cool. But I had mistakenly remembered that he had written over a thousand short stories. And I thought, oh, you know, that's somebody else I'm confusing him with. Gosh, who was that? There was some writer of Bradbury's caliber, you know, who like got his start in the, the pulps, that kind of thing, who died. And I read that, yes, he had over a thousand, I want to say published short stories. There were all of these short stories that had not been published when he died that got published by his estate or something like that afterward. But if that's not Ray Bradbury, who is it? I remember reading that um, Gene Roddenberry and Ray Bradbury were good friends. And Roddenberry was always trying to get Bradbury to do a, a Star Trek. Roddenberry had this idea, which was brilliant, of getting a bunch of top science fiction writers to write episodes of his show. To bring a cachet to it right from the beginning, you know, it's just like, hey, this isn't, you know, children's science fiction. This is science fiction written by people you know and respect. So he got like Theodore Sturgeon, Richard Matheson, Robert Block. Maybe it was Block. I don't know, I can't imagine Block had a thousand short stories. Harlan Ellison, Jerome Bixby. He got these guys to write him scripts and he was always trying to get Bradbury to write one. And Ray Bradbury saw <laughs> what working for Roddenberry did to all of these other writers, these other sci-fi writers. I mean, yeah, he made an enemy out of Harlan Ellison. But, you know, something tells me that Ellison is the kind of guy who makes enemies every room he walks into. But a lot of these guys resented Roddenberry. You know, he he would take their scripts and then he would change them because, according to Roddenberry, there just wasn't any time to send a list of notes and wait for these writers to get back the scripts to him in time for them to make them. So Roddenberry just grabbed, and he did it with everybody's even like the staff writers, even DC Fontana and, and Gene Kuhn's scripts, he would just 
sit down and rewrite them and that's what would air. Anyway, a lot of these bridges were burned and people would not work for Roddenberry again. And Ray Bradbury said to Gene, you need to stop asking me to do a Star Trek for you because I want to stay your friend. I would rather we be friends. This is so weird that I'm just talking and talking and talking. But anyhow, I thought of that 600 short stories thing, and I'm sure that most of those short stories are good, or all, I don't know, they can't all be good. But I just think about that, and I think, okay, let's say that I lived to be 90. How many short stories will I have written? And 600 is not outside the realm of possibility. How many will I have published? <laughs> there you go. I could put out a collection of short stories that is just stories that I have sold or, you know, that have been published in magazines or other podcasts or anthologies. And it would fill a volume, a slim volume. And that goes back to ambition again. I mean, it's not exactly ambition. It's a one-two punch of lack of ambition and cowardice. And the Doomsteef premiered eight years ago. We came up, oh my gosh, it's nine years ago now. So you've heard me say it over and over and over again. Same thing as I said in the very first year of the Doomsteef, still apply. We make fewer gay jokes in 2018 than we did in 2008. But other than that, I'm the same person, same writer, and I have the same weaknesses. And that is sad. Worse than sad. It's kind of tragic. Because it makes me think, well, what have I learned in 10 years? Now, granted, I'm not as cowardly. I put out the episode about my father's death. And believe me, that was harder than submitting a dozen stories to contests. Still not as hard as calling the girl that I liked on the telephone. I talked about that. I'm trying to think of where I talked about that. It had to have been one of the Rish Outcast episodes. Scary as hell. Now granted, it went badly when I called, I almost said her name. Is it okay to say her name? There's this girl, Rachel, that I, I fell in love with. And it was weird because I didn't choose to fall in love with her. I, I certainly wouldn't have chosen her if it were up to me. But I just, yeah, it went from like, yeah, oh, she's cool, to oh. And I, I, I guess I could do a whole Valentine's Day episode about that shite. And my Uncle John convinced me that this girl liked me. And then that was the reason that she acted the way that she did. My Uncle John was a ladies' man and really smooth with everyone, not just ladies. Really irreverent, super confident, like bizarro universe me. He told me that the way that she acted, the utter disdain that she showed me was a front. So he put this germ of an idea in my head that maybe she did like me despite 
all evidence to the contrary. And so I got her telephone number. I think I probably just looked it up in the phone book. Figured out, I asked my friend what her mother's name was or something like that. Then I looked it up in the phone book and I called and it was unbearable. It was so painful. Like, you ever stub your toe like on something hard and metal and it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This hurts so much more than I, I've broken bones and it hasn't hurt this much. That's what calling her was like. I, I don't even know how honest to, to be with you. I hung up the first time she came to the phone. And then, oh gosh, I hated myself so much. Teenage me got a verbal shellacking the likes of which a hundred insult comics would not be capable. And I called her again and it went so badly. She was not openly hostile to me, but she was just so apathetic and unfriendly. And I never called her again. In fact, I don't know that I ever spoke to her again. And, and, and I, you know, I hope I never do. I don't ever want to see that person again. What the? This is a tangent again, isn't it? Started talking about calling a girl? Well, I guess I was saying that I'm the same person that I was. And, I, you know, I imagine teenage me versus middle-aged me. And I'd like to think that I'm smarter and more confident and braver and funnier. But I don't know. That teenage kid would have ideas all the time, start to write them, and then never finish them. I just didn't have gas in the tank, couldn't motivate myself to do it. Uh, when I lived in LA, there was this girl and I really admired her, her hair. And I wrote a note, an anonymous note, and I left it at her desk. And a couple days later, she came up to me and asked me something and like work related. And I, I, I answered. And then she said this odd, off the cuff, apropos of nothing thing. It was a non sequitur, as they say. And she quoted the note to me. I don't know what I did physically, whether I went red or averted my eyes or my ears started to burning, but I pretended I didn't know what that was. And I kind of laughed. I was like, is that a poem? What is that? And she said nothing. And then she walked away. And I remember afterward thinking, was she fishing to see if I had written it? Or did she know that I had written it? Because those were the only two options. There's no third option. I mean, uh, yeah, if you want to come up with some silly, stupid idea of she had that on her mind and so she was quoting it. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> Dude, this is the worst episode I've ever recorded. I was just about to tell this story of my mom wrote me a letter and my dad 
wrote like a single sentence on it, you know, just after she'd written the letter, she's like, oh, I'm going to give it to him, and then he can say what he wants, and then I'll send it off. And he put a sentence, you know, she's like, you be careful and try not to spend all your money. Something like that, you know. Don't, don't waste your money on things you don't got to have. So I re, I, when I wrote my mom back, I said, uh, wow, you know, dad was really chatty in that last letter. I'm amazing that he could come up with so much to say to me. Who would have thought? And she took me seriously. And in her response, she said, um, wow, but that shouldn't surprise me because I remember when we were dating, he wrote me some really nice letters. You know, that's a side of him I haven't seen in many years. But it's nice that he wrote you so much. Not realizing that I was being sarcastic. Lord, I was born a rambling man. This podcast is going where it can. I sat down to be a writer and I tell you what, Stan. This episode's going in the trash can. I apologize. I, I remember the very beginning of the Rish Outcast, the first episode I ran without a story, I think I called conversation episode. Not knowing that every episode after that was going to be a variation. Very sad. I don't know that this episode is done. It sucks, but it's, I don't know that it's done. I've now reached the area up here where the cabin is, and this is the first time I've come up by myself on a weekday. It is a Thursday, and in the past, I think I came up on Friday afternoon and then, you know, spent the night. But the work I had for tomorrow fell through. And so I thought, well, hey, I'll just go up a day early. And so here I am on a Thursday, and there's no people. I haven't seen a single person. I haven't heard a person. I haven't heard a dog. I haven't farted, which is nice. The last time I was here, it was super loud. There were people building a cabin across the way and they'd brought a bunch of their kids over. It's noisy. So this is gonna be quiet and hopefully very productive. My gosh, I hope I can come up with something interesting to say to you. Rich Outfield from the future again. I think I'm going to cut the episode off right there. Ha-ha. Hilariously, I almost said, I'm going to cut off the episode early. But uh, if you've made it this far, you know that it's not early at all. And I was about to apologize for uh, splitting this in two and getting double the episodes out of it. But, you know, I'm not going to apologize. I I don't know why I'm going to tell you this, but I'm going to tell you Uh, When I was in college, when we were in film school, you had to take like the regular classes, history, math, science, homicidal psychology. But you also had to take film-related courses. And in one of those courses, there was a producing class, not a production class, where you actually make movies, but one where you learn about how movies are made and financed and how long it takes for something to make a profit. And uh, one of our assignments was come up with your own production company, make the name of the production company and 
create a logo for your production company. Like uh, every once in a while you will see at the end of a television show. And now, you know, they're everywhere. And you have to sit through animations and stuff at the beginning of movies. But in those days, I was like, wow, neat. I never thought of that. What would my production company be called? At the time, I had this tendency to uh, apologize for things that were out of my control. I was taking an Italian class, and I didn't speak Italian, and I would apologize for that. And I was like, yeah, none of the students in this class speak Italian. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, right, sorry. I would apologize all the time. <laughs> it's funny, because like there was a girl 10 years later that I, uh, I met and still think about from time to time. I, I, I mentioned her in the uh, Journey into Another promo episode. And she was worse than I was, uh, where she would apologize every single time you spoke to her. Where I'd be like, yeah, the parking lot was full, so I had to park next door. Sorry. I'm sorry. And I'd be like, well, you didn't have anything to do with it. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to apologize. And it really bothered me. And it's only now, all these years later, that I'm thinking, maybe it bothered me because... I did that too. And I did that so much that when it came time to name my production company, I chose No Apologies Productions. And I made a logo and I used to draw that logo all the time, you know, trying to perfect it, thinking that one day I would be a filmmaker and this logo would show up at the end of a television show or on the one sheet of a movie or something. I, I don't know. Maybe foreseeing a time where you get three minutes of production company logos at the beginning of a movie. And, you know, I'm aware that even then you would get them. And sometimes they have so many that they'll put like three or four at the beginning of a movie and then bump two or three for the end of the movie. Anyhow, I handed this in, you know, no apologies productions. And I, I made a little drawing of our production house, you know, like our building. It said, no apologies, productions. And then there was a sign out front that said, no loitering, warning, skateboarders will be shot on sight. Anyway, uh, somebody commented on that. He says, wait a minute, who put skateboarders will be shot on sight, man? That's not cool. Skateboarders have it harder than anybody. Skateboarding is not a crime, bro. Skate or die. And, you know, it was meant to be a joke. But I just, it bothered me enough that, I, that I'm telling you about it now. And for a little while there, when I started doing audiobooks, I thought, well, maybe I should put my No Apologies production logo at the end of audiobooks. And I did. I tried it for two or three uh, and then I forgot, and then I stopped. But I think I did one last year, and uh, if I were a real man, I, I suppose I would put it at the end of every one of these. Maybe that's a, uh, a decision for Rich Outfield of the future to the sequel. So, see you next week. Now listen up, you, because I shan't be saying this again. Like it or not, 
The Rish Outcast is presented under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. While it hurts to say, that means you can't alter, sell, or claim ownership of the file. But you can download it, share it, and grind it to bits under your heavy boots free of charge. There's also a Patreon fund attached to it if you've lost hold of your senses and want to encourage more of the show. You can donate a dollar an episode and up, or just contribute monthly to Outfield's dance. In return, he presents exclusive content, as well as early access to the episodes. Thus endeth the lesson. This is probably an irresponsible time to be podcasting because it's pouring rain outside. Although, just in the time that I've been sitting in the car, uh, it's died down. You probably can't even hear it. (laughs) Uh, I lent my sister my car the other day because she had to get to work and she was waiting for my brother-in-law and he hadn't arrived and... So I said, well, look, just take my car and I'll trade cars with you when I can, you know, after I, when I can, like I said, uh, you know, I had the kids, so it wasn't like I was likely to go anywhere. So, uh, but the next day she's like, hey, do you have my debit card? And I was like, why would I have your debit card? And she's like, because I borrowed your car and she was mad. And so instantly I got mad and I was just like, oh yeah, you know? Next time your husband loses his wallet, come to me first and ask if I have it. It was dumb because she just wanted to get in my car and uh, and look for her debit card. And so I gave her my keys and I guess she went in and found the debit card. And that was all I ever heard of it. Until today when it was time to leave and I couldn't find my keys. Gosh, I, I, I can't figure out where they are. And, and I thought, is it possible that she has them? So I went out to my car and it was it was raining hard, like South America hard, where you're just like, wow, I'm soaked to the skin and I've been out less than a minute. And my car was unlocked. And living in Los Angeles for six years, I always lock my car, I always do, you know? You'll see people, they'll go to the gas station or, or they'll go to convenience store or whatever, and they just leave the keys in the ignition, they leave the engine running. And because I lived in a big city where my car was stolen despite having always locked it, they used a crowbar to get in, uh, I always lock it. And uh, it wasn't locked. So I was like, oh, okay. So she was the last person in my car. That was a bummer, but that's life. (laughs) So I'm borrowing my mom's car. Uh, My mom's car is way nicer than mine anyway. Probably the sound quality is better. You know, it's not way nicer than mine. Both of us bought used cars, and hers is like two years newer than mine and a little bit nicer than mine. But yeah, I, I did all right. I'm not complaining. Shoot, that's not what I was going to podcast about. What was it? Oh, I think the point is, when I when I was leaving, I wasn't going to podcast at all because I've got an audiobook and it's overdue. And so I try to listen to it whenever I'm in the car. Uh, there have been a couple of times that I've just parked the car and listened to it while I ate or instead of going in the house. Because I want to finish this thing, even though there are discs, many discs left. 
which will add up to a lot of late fees, but that's life. That's, that's okay. I mean, it's my choice. I could have returned it. So yeah, if I had been in my car, I wouldn't be podcasting right now. And the subject I was going to podcast about fudge. I, I can't remember. And, and there was a sign out front that said, uh, warning, or it said, said no soliciting. No, no, not, not soliciting. What's the other thing? Vagrancy. Um, no, uh, what do you call it when somebody's just loitering? No loitering. What I ought to do is just sit down in front of the computer and say, I'm going to write five stories. Okay, whoa, 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 sorry. (laughs) That's too ambitious even for me. Maybe put that as a fucking outtake. I can only say I'm sorry so many times. Well, say it again. I'm sorry. No apologies. Put your accents.